0: part 3 chapter 4 of better angel by richard meeker this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org better angel by richard meeker part 3 chapter 4 kurt surrendered his package picked up his change and sauntered out of the post office with a feeling that was partly relief and partly regret The last pages of the piano score of The Duchess were off to Tony in New York. He had worked so steadily at it since coming back to Paris that it seemed strange not to have it hanging over him. He wondered vaguely whether he would hear from Tony at all any more, now that the manuscript was completed. His letters had been so brief and so impatient for the rest of the score. He realized, too, with a quick tightening of his throat, and the old familiar heaviness in his chest, that the loneliness that had been hovering over him, kept away only by the steady routine of copying, the pedestrian setting down of notes and bars and signs, the armor of drudgery, was now descending with the pervasiveness of fog, and was to be dissipated about as easily. He might have gone to his room. He had secured a small one, on the third floor in the Rue de Tournon near Foyat's, in the Luxembourg gardens, but while it had seemed acceptable enough for a copy-room, he now had for it a distinct aversion. February was barely over, and there was already in the air an intangible sense of spring. Kurt turned his back resolutely on the Rue des Tournans, and walked quickly into the gardens. There were greyish-green buds on the chestnut trees and in their lacy shadowings spring seemed more than ever a new certainty a number of old men played at bowls the balls clicking together sharply the benches were dotted with students alone reading in angular unconscious poses or in twos conversing earnestly and with nursemaids ribboned and starched while children screaming shrilly rolled hoops as tall as themselves along the sun-flecked paths with ever-returning spring the half-line from where he could not say ran a persistent refrain through his head spring spring recurrent and recurrent and always the same spring in barton with maple leaves like green small hands with marbles in the schoolyard with rubbish burning in backyards with heavy-footed horses turning and turning in small garden plots AS THE PLOWS TURNED UP THE MOIST EARTH, FURROWING IT PATIENTLY FOR SEEDS AGAIN, FOR GROWTH AGAIN. SPRING IN ANN ARBOR, WITH STUDENTS strolling THROUGH THE EARLY EVENINGS IN couples OR ALONE. DERRY AND KURT, TOGETHER ON A SPRING NIGHT, ON A MOON-WHITENED HILLSIDE. SPRING, SPRING, LONELINESS TUGGING AT THE HEART, TEARS IN THE NIGHT, JOY IN THE MORNING. HE SWALLOWED. WHAT THE HELL? HE TURNED UP THE BOULEVARD RASPALE looking now and then in the windows of the scattered, strangely assorted shops, the Dôme, the Rontande, each crowded and noisy with chatter. He found a vacant table at the Dôme, and ordered a café au lait. It was pleasant here, in this babble of English and American voices, with only occasionally a phrase of French, like a struggling cross-current. Young men in knickers and grey ties, some with beards, some with too long hair, girls in smocks or smart gowns from the boulevards sipping green pernods it might almost be kurt thought with a chuckle some art school in new york there was even a battered ford at the curb he was startled by a bustling feminine voice just at his elbow why mr gray it was miss horan he jumped to his feet embarrassed won't you won't you sit down thanks thanks I've been hunting a studio, and I'm dead. She dropped into the chair, which, to Kurt's surprise, barely shivered. The waiter was beside them. What'll you have, Miss Horan? Oh, she exhaled, relievedly, taking off her velvet tam. I'm glad to see you. Last time I saw you, you were in a great hurry. Kurt blushed and stammered. Yes, I... Well, I made a very stupid remark, and your neighbors took it the the worst possible way i was quite embarrassed you were oh well it's nice to be able to be embarrassed you know i can't any more the beer arrived and kurt found himself curiously glad to be chatting with this large frowsy woman it was a weapon this casual meeting against the encroaching loneliness and for the moment he was happy they talked at random until miss horan declared she must positively be off Kurt walked her to her room, which was just off the boulevard in a narrow court, bade her good-bye, and made for the nearest metro. He was soon at the opera, and making for the American Express. There were several letters, and he thrust them all into his pocket jealously. He threaded through the afternoon crowds off the boulevard to the Madeleine, and thence to the Champs-Elysees. The great parkway, in this late afternoon, was kaleidoscopic with moving figures against the pale green background of spring. Kurt passed one of the theatres. The bare-legged children were all gone, and the low benches empty until another day. A man was fumbling at the tiny stage door, his arms full of gangling puppets, in a strenuous attempt to fasten it. His wife stood by, chattering at him like an angry squirrel. Kurt, smiling, thought, poor puppeteer. She thinks he's a puppet too. He found a deserted bench at last, and took out his letters. There was always, so far from home, an unaccountable reluctance to open letters, a wanton struggling against the very real impatience to know their contents. He sat holding them for several minutes, sorting them over, studying their casings, and arranging them in the order in which they should be opened. The two business letters from the conservatory The letter from Tony, the one from home, and last of all David's. For it was David, in this sudden softness of spring, David's eyes, David's promises, that recurred over and over again. Tony's was the briefest note. He had secured a part and was in rehearsal. He was anxious for the complete score. He'll soon have it and be satisfied, Kurt muttered. From his mother, the church supper was well attended. The snow is nearly gone we've had to have the dining room repapered your father is reading the seed catalogues love mother and scrawled at the bottom the same goes for dad david's envelope bulged there were pages written in the flourishing exciting hand he knew perhaps better than he knew the person who had set it down yet here was a love letter a spring letter bursting with promises and assurances and begging for promises and assurances in return. This was the letter for such a day, ecstatic and willful and turbulent and ridiculous and wise. Surely, surely, David's high ideal was his forever. Not Tony's, not Chloe's, not the world's, but David's. A thin, soft voice insinuated itself into his tumbling dream. You buy nice rug? Good rug, cheap. A small Arab, a pile of rugs over his shoulder, held the edges of them out appealingly. No, no, said Kurt, no rugs. Good rugs, cheap, the vendor insisted. Kurt shook his head emphatically. The Arab drew closer and shoved under his nose, from some recess of his loose garment, a card. In the glance he gave it Kurt saw a tangle of white limbs, an obscene octopus of human flesh. Pictures, nice pictures, the man whined, naked ladies, two, three, four, all together, naked, no, Kurt sprang to his feet in a rage and was away before the astonished vendor could collect himself and follow his heels bit angrily into the gravel path. Why must such vile things thrust themselves in over and over the lascivious picture fight against it as he would called up Tony's tale of the Philadelphia party, the amorous heaps of young men on saffron cushions, and David there, smiling and superior. What should he believe? It was spring, spring. Love was in the restlessness of his soul. David's eyes said, Wait, wait, wait. Tony's curling lips said, You're in Paris, boy. Find a coquette and see what love is really like. Chloe's smooth dark hair whispered, Forget, forget, and come to me, to the Chloe you've never known, my lips, my breasts, my body. He turned back into the boulevards, uncertain where to go. He realized that he was hungry, and, stopping at a small café near the opera, ordered dinner. He sat long over his wine and cigarettes, questioning himself futilely. Was he a fool? He was young. He had never known a woman. It was spring. This was Paris. Would it hurt? Dared he? Could he? David, David's eyes. Wanting only David, how could he? He paid his bill and walked on in the dusk. The lights, lavender, yellow, were springing out of the half-dark like stiff, exotic, strangely phosphorescent fruits. He hesitated before crossing the Place d'Opere. A cringing figure was at his side got plans for tonight buddy he moved away impatiently but the figure little more than a voice in the gathering darkness followed I'll show you the sights swell house nice clean girls seventeen eighteen years old hot stuff kid you won't go wrong I know Paris boy oh so do I leave me alone he dashed in front of a careening taxi and his escape was signalled by the screech of brakes, an explosion of Gallic oaths from the driver, and a bedlam of protesting horns. He dove again into the metro, boarded a train, and got off at the Place Pigalle. He came out again into the garish night. The streets and cafés swarmed with noisy amusement-seekers, Americans seemingly predominating. It was a seething contrast of light and shadow. Faces upturned, catching the shifting multicolored lights of the signs, were curious, unhealthy flowers moving through a Walpurgis night, lustful and secretive, vulgar and perverse. He swung into the crowd the moulin rouge, the rat mort, each drawing its quota of satiated but ever hungering humans. Oh, why not? He thought and avoiding a half dozen scalpers he secured himself a cheap seat for a review. It was a nauseating performance, too obviously exhibitionistic to be remotely funny. The women were pasty and too fat, and moved through their art poses like dilapidated automatons. The men at either side of Kurt watched eagerly, nudging their neighbors when, as the climax of each number, one girl, slightly less fat than her sisters undressed in some perfect masterpiece of bad taste and took her seductive pose in the white pencil of the spotlight for the curtain kurt looked about him at these men young old fat jowled thin staring with amorous and bovine satisfaction at these successive tableaux and shuddered the secret small triangle beneath this bit of sequin that each man lusted for this it was to be normal the Arab rug-vendor, the pimp at the opera, a stud-stable, lacking the dignity that nobler and less self-conscious animals might give it, he fumbled his way out. The whole vile world seemed bent to thwart love, natural or unnatural, that was pure and worthy of the name. This knowledge Tony was so anxious for him to achieve, this mystery that hides between a woman's thighs, might, conceivably, have been a mystery. Delphic, lovely, approached with fear and reverence. But now, in this fevered night, it was a dirty secret, behind a bit of sequin, that any man with a few francs in his pocket might buy. No, it was not for him. From dark doorways as he passed, whispers came sifting into his consciousness. A rouged hand with cheap rings on it, caught at his sleeve, a warm body pressed against him, and he shook her off roughly. He walked rapidly, through light streets and dark, across the boulevards, through the Tuileries, and the Seine across it, and along it again, calmer now, but abysmally unhappy. Ahead of him, loitering, was a thin girl. Kurt stopped abruptly. Did he want this knowledge, which the man-world thought so vital? Was all the raging of the last few hours nothing more than a noisy mechanism to defend him from his own fear. Was he afraid? Christ in heaven! Was he, under all this fine philosophizing, a beast like all the rest? The girl had stopped under a street lamp, and was looking back at him curiously, her face mask-like in its lilac flickering. No, whatever it was in him, hungering, aching, unsatisfied, it was not for this he knew not for something to be bought, whatever it was. He felt in his pocket, hastened his step, thrust into the hand of the astonished girl a twenty-franc note, and hurried off. There were still people in the cafés. He rounded the corner by the Odeon. The evening's crowd was just coming out. The night was warm and soft. He turned into his own street, stumbled up the dark stairs to his room, and lay face down across his bed in the darkness spring was like running fire in his bones he could now he thought almost no no eternally he rose and switched off the light the mirror across the room reflected the garish wallpaper he crossed to it and stared at his face reflected there intently abstractedly as a stranger might you he said at last you you should have bought the Arab's pictures, the whole dirty lot of them, and taken them to bed with you. He retired then, but did not sleep for a long time. End of part three, chapter four.